0: this podcast is sponsored by inside out group the specialists in high risk and challenging filming and time-lapse covering health and safety videos for rail construction and infrastructure projects nationwide welcome to this week's safer than your average on the show this week we've got neil fisher if you look Nibosh shop in the dictionary, there's a photo of Neil holding a plaque that says, completed it, mate. <laughs> Neil's done almost every training course you can imagine under the sun, and I don't know how he fits it all in as well as working on the railway. So I've well, just got to hand over to you, Neil, just to introduce yourself first of all.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Neil Fisher. I'm a health, safety and environmental practitioner on the railway. I've been working on the railway for 14 years now, in safety for the last eight.
0: Excellent, excellent. Okay, so I know you've seen the format of the podcast in the past. Yeah. We'd like to just go right back to the start of the guests, where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Okay, so I grew up in a little mining community called Armthorpe. It's a, a village in Doncaster. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents are originally from Scotland. They moved down in the late 50s, early 60s. So all the men could go work in the mines. Um, and that's that's where I grew up. Typical mining community. Um, the men went to work. They came home. They got changed. They went out and they had a few beers. Mm-hmm. That type of thing. Very close-knit community. Um, when the mines closed... They were completely, de- the villages were decimated. Things went into real bad recession, crime, poverty. Drugs took a hold, that sort of thing. But, you know, the villages are rebounding now. Um, they have been for about the last 10, 15 years, really recovered well. Other industries come in and, you know, they get the recovering. So that was, uh, that's where I grew up. Um, family of four, I had an older brother, uh, me and my mum my and dad didn't never really had a lot as it were as kids mm-hmm. but it was it was that sort of lifestyle where you didn't know any different you get up in the morning as a kid you'd be out and that'd be you be out until it's either tea time or your mum shouted you to come in because it's time for bath and bed mm-hmm. and so typical upbringing really for our sort of generation i mean in the mid to late 30s and 37 now so i think yeah. you know similar sort of upbringing to to a lot of people
0: yeah Yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot of that resonates with me, coming from the the west coast of Scotland. Um, Except instead of mining, it was shipbuilding we had. Yeah, that's the industry up there, isn't it? Yeah, it was at one time. It was at one time. (laughs) (laughs) So moving forward a little bit then, Neil, tell us a bit about your first job.
1: So when I was at school, I was... uh, What can I say? I was Jack the Lad's bit cheeky as well as a lot cheeky Um, you know I thought I was the bee's knees and you look back at yourself now 20 odd years later and you think what a blank wasted those years but you know (laughs) I had a lot of fun at the time I'll say that I had a lot of fun at the time Um, so I left school as soon as I could leave I left didn't really leave with any GCSEs I didn't put any effort in It wasn't that I couldn't, and I couldn't apply myself. I just have a very, and it's still to this day, I have a very, very, very short concentration span. If I'm not interested in something, it's over. If I am interested in it, I'll digest it, I'll listen to it all day. But at the time, I wasn't interested in school. I was just interested in going out with my mates, chasing girls around, that sort of thing, as you are at that age. So 16, I left school, no GCSEs, but I was quite fortunate in that when we did what was called, it was called Trident at the time, Mm -hmm. work experience that you do when you're about 15, went to a construction company called Henry Boot. Yeah, yeah, I know
0: Henry Boot,
1: yeah. yeah. Because I was a bit of a Jack the Ladder, kind of fitted in with the building trade at at that time, and they they told me, when you leave school, give us a ring, we'll sort something out for an apprenticeship. So I went there I got a painting and decorating apprenticeship. And I mm-hmm. think that lasted for about three or four weeks. And at the time, it was the princely sum of £55 a week. And at yeah. first I thought, you know, I'm rich. I've gone from £5 a week pocket money to £55. And then I can't remember if it was a friend or I saw it advertised somewhere and they said, come work in, the, in this factory and you can earn £130. And that, that was just astronomical money at the time. So, in my infinite wisdom, being a know-it-all 16-year-old, I left the trade to go and work in a factory. Um, yeah. And that's kind of what I did for the next, say, 10 years-ish. Just sort of drifted from you know, job, you know, lived for the weekends, going out, having fun, as you do at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. You know, had, a, had a lot of fun doing that. Um, and then it was kind of got to an age where I just thought, you know what, I've got to start thinking about something. Here. As I'm getting into my early 20s, mid-20s, I'm not really going anywhere. And that's the time that you see your friends buying the houses, they're having children, and I'm still living for the weekend. And it was my uncle. He worked for a company called Grant Rail mm-hmm. at the time. And he, I always remember he showed me wage slips this is probably going back very early 2000s. Mm-hmm. He showed me a wage slip where he'd earned £500 a week. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that just blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind that someone could earn that amount of money. <laughs> so, so I was constantly badgering him. Get me a job, get me a job, get me a job. And it was called plate laying at the time. Yeah, um, But he could never quite get me in after having PTS and all that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So then I was I was working with a friend in some um, house renovating work so we're doing decorating you know mm-hmm. knocking walls down painting that sort of thing and working in Cleethorpes, um we we went out one night we got a bit drunk and found ourselves in a little bit of bother on the way home um, <laughs> and we We spent the night in, uh, in the, how should we say just being a bit too raucous. And then the following morning, I was like, I've got to stop this. And then I heard about a company called Trackwork, which were quite local to me. And Mm -hmm. they were doing a, it was a government funded scheme and went to college with them and it was 10 weeks. And in that ten weeks, you got your PTS, so your personal track safety. To those that aren't familiar with the railway, yep. uh, your track induction, and they trained you up on small tools, plan, all that sort of thing. And you got a couple of NVQs thrown in along with it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I pr- pretty much really quickly on that course, I found I had a real passion for the, that environment, and I started excelling very quickly. And the trainer made me the t- split the class into two. And he made me the team leader of one half, another guy team leader of the other half. And our team was always winning whatever we did. We were were always the best. At the end of the 10 weeks, a trainer came in one day and he says, look, track work normally just churn these people out and you go off into the world and you find your own jobs. However, track work wants to take five of you onto the books and start working, you know, to bolster the gangs that they have. Mm -hmm. I was one of the five. I was quite fortunate. So they put me in into one of the gangs. And you know, you come out of your training course, you think you're you think you're the bee's knees, yeah, you think so invented. Old, you invented <laughs> the You think you invented the railway, you think you're everything. Yep. And then then I think it was look, in September 2006, mm-hmm. My first shift was a Saturday night shift, which was a huge culture shock, and it was shoveling yes. ballast. For those that don't know what shoveling ballast is like, I how I didn't put my back out on that shift, I don't know it's, it's the old trick of you let a new you give a newbie a shovel and then you tell him to go and shovel some ballast. And The first thing you do as a newbie is you whack that shovel in as hard as you can, but it's going into ballast so it doesn't go anywhere and you just jar your arms. So I did a 12-hour shift and I think I must have told myself throughout that 12-hour shift it wasn't for me. It was raining. I, uh, <laughs> I had a supervisor on site that was quite notorious, he was called Barry the Uh, uh and he wasn't called that for nothing and he was <laughs> and it was just, it was such an enlightening experience and then I started working in again with a team eggs miners just get the job done type of individuals. Yeah. And it was it was just the best time when you first start on the railway and you're getting to know everything, you're learning it. And it, it was just great. And they were just so rough ass the people I was working with. And it was I, I didn't I learned how to fix the railway. I didn't think I didn't learn anything about health and safety in that time whatsoever, because it was literally, you went, you got it done, you went home. And at the time, my foreman, he was he was a character. His nickname was Beano, they called him Beano because he looked like one of the Bash Street kids. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was very, very sort of highly qualified in rail qualifications, but he would never want to put his name on to paperwork, just in case something went wrong. Yep. So, I think I've been with him for about seven or eight months, and he said to me, Right, young man, I'm going to make you into a cost. Those that don't know what a COS is, it's a controller of site safety. Now, green yeah. as anything, don't really know. I've not really learned anything about this while being there. But I went in, I think it was when I finally did the course, I've been on the railway a year. So, mm-hmm. I went in and completely, completely aced it. I don't know. Don't know how it happened, but I used to came top of the class, highly recommended all this stuff. Of of- well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was- course course, for anyone that doesn't know, is probably one of the hardest courses you can do in the railway. Once you start to progress beyond course and the engineering supervisor, mm-hmm. you have that depth of background to be able to go into that role. But course is probably one of the, the most difficult ones to crack. Yeah. And I mean it, the
1: thing was, and I when you start doing costing, you're talking mm-hmm. to a signal. And this was back I in like the days when yeah. yeah, this was back in the day when you had your little book, your RT9909, and you did it all mm-hmm. yourself. Nowadays everything's mm-hmm. planned and populated for you, but back then you did it yep. yourself. And if you had a single thing wrong and you rang your signal up and said, Can I have XYZ? You'd either get the phone down, put down on you, or get told to go forth and multiply. Mm-hmm. and ringing back later when you got your facts right. But I took a real, I took a real, sh- Don't took a real time time shine there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're they're
1: they're an odd bunch. Signal is that they're either really really <laughs> helpful or really really unhelpful. Um, but yeah, I just found that I started taking a real interest in that and a keen interest in that, and I was doing that for quite a while. And I think it was just coming up for, we, were, we and we were always the team that worked away, always to get mm-hmm. all the jobs that were away from home and, you know, I was someone in the mid-20s and you're earning that sort of money because you're working 10 hours a day, six days a week. And at the time, mm-hmm. I'd moved back to my parents, I didn't have any financial outgoings, I wasn't married, no children at the time, nothing. So it was just, I thought I was a Saudi prince, I had that much money. <laughs> and that's it. Just it was just the life you led at that time, and it was yep. just we'd be in London a lot. We'd be all everywhere. Yes. At Western Supermair was always quite eventful when we went there. Um, and that's that's kind of how we got the foundation on the railway. And then it got to two thousand and nine, and financial crisis hit, and then we went into recession, and it started getting the industry if you remember back then got really really thin so they were looking to make redundancies and at that time um they had had track work had had some directors leave and it's formed up their own business called first in Rail. um and when they track work, were offering redundancies it was sort of the, the last in first out type model and they yeah. tried with, with a few of us, they tried saying, look, we're going to lay you off for six to ten weeks or something. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Or if after that time we can't bring you back, we're going to make it redundant. So in the meantime, I spoke to some people and I got the offer of a job in London, on London Underground.
0: So mm-hmm.
1: I said to try work, I said, look, I don't want to wait for ten weeks. Just let me take my redundancy now. but got this other opportunity. So that's what I did. And I went down to... London worked on the underground. I kind of took a step backwards and started back again in the teams, working just as a, a labor. And uh, well, what a culture shock! London Underground was.
0: Yeah, it's totally different,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it was just. And I stood on the platform the first night, and what they called the protection master gave his briefing. Mm-hmm. Now at this time, you've got to bear in mind, I'm a little railway worker from Doncaster I've not had much interaction with other ethnicities in the industry, when you go into the London Underground and a lot of the protection staff will do a tremendous job but it was my first experience of listening to a Nigerian person speaking and I I didn't understand him and I said to him after the briefing, I was like sorry, I'm from Doncaster, I'm not from sort of London's and you repeat it, and it took me a while to get used to it. And when I did, mm-hmm. and it's just second nature like now, but it's just, that, it's just that difference in in how people talk, and it was just a real big culture shock. And then to go on to the underground, actually working in the tunnels, and the first time I was down the tunnel, for anyone that's been on the underground, the tunnels, whilst they're underground, are quite close to one another. So there could be one open mm-hmm. that's going above you, while you're working in one and a train's going through and it sounds like it's coming around that bend here. so it's quite it's quite a daunting experience on the underground yeah but yeah. I did a few years on on the underground and then I got asked if I wanted to do it was a scheme two blinds were doing at the time and it was called Be Safe
0: mm-hmm. and it was
1: just like a, giving someone within the team a little bit of sort of responsibility for safety just to take a step back and just have a look at things. So you'd have your protection okay. officer, you'd be in charge of the protection side of things and keeping you all safe from the train. Then you'd have your SPCs who'd be in charge of the work and your handback who'd be in charge of the the track back. And this was mm-hmm. sort of a project, and it was really, really good. And it was giving someone in the gang a little bit of sort of training and encouragement just to take a step back every shift and just have a look what's going well, what isn't going so well, what you could actually look at. So because mm-hmm. when you're in one of those roles, you're so focused in tunnel tunnel vision on what yeah. you're doing. You're not quite seen in your peripheral. And that's what it was. And I, I got a real interest in that. And at the time, it was uh, one of the most senior people or for safety on the underground was a gentleman called Neil Pepper, And he came mm-hmm. down one night and he looked at... I took this very seriously. And he looked at my folder and he... He didn't really say anything to me at the, the time. Then... The next day, I get called into the office and saying, Neil's reported your folder. I'm thinking, what? He never said anything to me on the night. What? So I'm, I'm thinking he's reported me in a bad way. And they're like No, no, he's reported it. It's the best one he's seen. And he thinks you're really driving it forward. And they were going to come film me and do all this different stuff, talking about it. And then he came down and spoke to me about it. And that was my first real introduction into safety. And what that led to mm. was my director at the time saying to me that they, were, they had a vacancy in the safety team mm. and would I be interested in doing it? Straight away, I was like, absolutely. So it's a little bit of a pet hate at mine now, but it's, it's how I kind of started as well. But he just said, right, as of Monday, you're going to be the, the night safety advisor. And that, that was my introduction. I had no... Safety training or anything like that, and it was that's that's how I drifted into safety. Um, and that was that was a challenge. That was a, a real good challenge on the underground. That was.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, moving forward from there, then safety-focused jobs. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about how that expanded from there. Where did you go from there? So it was a little bit.
1: I thought I thought straight away. Right, I want to do my NIOSH. I want to do it well. Mm-hmm. Talking to people, I'd never even heard of it at the time. And I was like, "What safety qualifications?" And you've got, have you got, and they were like Nee-bosh. And I was like, "Oh what?" Well. So then they would explain National Examination Board of Occupational Safety and Health. And I'm like, "What is that?" So I started looking into it, and I thought, "Well, there's there's no way I can do that. Absolutely not." So I thought about mm-hmm. it. Spoke to the director at the time, and it was very much of the mindset: "Look, you're just starting out. Get some experience, and in six months a year, we'll we'll discuss it again." So then, I started. That's I think that was my first real sort of rush with what we call imposter syndrome. Now, I was like, I don't feel comfortable um, calling myself as safety advisor without any formal grounding I've got experience in the work absolutely but having that safety knowledge mm-hmm. you know if people ask you about legislation I had no clue back then mm-hmm. so I thought right so I looked at it I looked how much it was going to be and there was a place close to where I lived at the time And I was living in Kent at the time um, that, that did the course so I thought you know what I'm gonna do it self-funded it and I did it and um, well, that was just like a, a, an epiphany moment for me. So, did that in, I want to say ended, going on towards the end of 2012. We mm-hmm. just had the Olympics in London, which, whilst great for the country and great for London, caused massive disruptions in the travel industry. In yeah. So, the, the sort of transport network, nothing could move around in the daytime. It affected the trains because they were running late so you got less time and engineering hours and that sort of thing so a lot of people were stuck down from work at the time and as a zero hours contractor it was, mm-hmm. uh, it, was it was challenging for quite a lot of people so i thought yeah. i need to diversify and you know living in kent and working in london it's an expensive bill so if you're not earning money mm-hmm. you're, you're in banging trouble so i self-funded the nebosh um And I did that, and it was just, it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, you start it day one, you think, this is brilliant, this is amazing. And then you get further into NGC1, and day two, you start feeling like you're you're a barrister in training. You think, I I know everything. And then day three, I can remember going home, laying on my bed and thinking, what on earth have I let myself in for (laughs) here?" Get, I went home and I thought I've not took a single thing in today. I've sat in that classroom all day and I have not took a single thing in. Anyway, you know, you, you get past mm-hmm. that as you get into it, and the more study you do, the easier it becomes. And and I think I passed that and I passed that with quite a quite a decent pass.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think I, I think I was. I can't remember if, I can't remember if it was a credit or distinction or whatever, but I was over the moon with that at the time. I mean, uh, right now. Mm-hmm. I Don't care about past credit distinction, you'll never see a job advertised for a distinction. Nebos passes a pass for me, that's what I always tell people mm. when they ask me. And then talking to some of the people I work with, and you know, you come out of your first Nebos course and you think you think that's it, you think you're the man, you think you invented, you wrote Health and Safety at Work Act after that. So I was talking to people, and they were like. Oh, well, yeah, I've done the Nibosh. And it just seemed on the underground that that was sort of the status quo. You didn't really do much after that. You'd made it and that was the level. I remember one guy, he'd done the diploma and he was just revered as like the health and safety. He'd passed the diploma and you know nobody passed the diploma. So, it's, you know, spending time with him, getting to understand the sort of aspects from him And I thought, I've got to Mm -hmm. start doing a little bit more here. And then on London Underground, fire is quite a high risk. So, and people, Mm -hmm. more people were asking me about fire. The general certificate's fine, but it's general. It's all about a general health and safety quality. So, I looked at doing the fire, so, did that. And because I'd just done the NGC1, I could just do the conversion much cheaper, much quicker. It was only a week. Mm-hmm. great so then I passed that fascinating course absolutely loved that yeah yep. then I thought right what do I do now so I've got two and then we start talking about environmental so I thought right I'm going to look at the environmental certificate so I did that that was only a five day one and in the space of 12 months I did four nearby certificates I did I did the general the fire environmental and then the health and well-being Yep. So that, was the, that was the 2012, going into 2013. Um, I, th- I thought at the time, I thought, right, I've done four. I think I'm ready for the diploma now. Right. Um, I've, I've done as much as I can at certificate level. I want to go for the diploma. Mm-hmm. So I looked at looking into the diploma, and at the time, it was £6,000. It was just mm-hmm. absolutely... I, I had a house in Kent by myself, Working in London, paying for your own fuel, that sort of thing. There was just no way I had six thousand pounds at the time to fund that. So I was like, What else can I do? So then I started looking into the MVQ, and the MVQ I think it's such an underutilized route now. it was the new NCRQ qualification. And the, the, the MVq was kind of getting left behind. But at the time, I looked at it, and I remember signing up for it, and it was like a quarter of the price of what the NEBOS diploma was. Mm-hmm. It was a pure financial decision. I can remember it signing up for it, and because it's all online portal, I thought, this would be really good. I'll be able to you know, work at night time so I can do a lot of studying in the day, that sort of thing. And I can remember looking at the the list of criteria for it. The, the is it ten or twelve categories? And I was looking at it, and I was like, "What? Are they, what are they asking for? What is this? I've got no clue what this is." So I had that, you know, that that moment of stamping the feet, like I can't do this. What's this. But then you start looking into it, and that's well, it's actually that's what I'm doing because of that, and I'm doing that, and and you know, you, you build your portfolio of evidence, and you write your reflective account for each one and I got through that pretty quick I think i have done it in the space of three or four months and then it got that wow. sort of, yeah yeah that, that sort of took me to let's say coming up to end of 2014 is when I finished it mm-hmm. and I'd made the decision at this point that I wanted to move back to Doncaster wasn't working for me in Kent anymore, and I wanted to move back. So I, had a, I thought it'll be a simple transition, and the company I worked from so asked if I'm transfer there. Not a problem. So they agreed. but they said: you're not transferring back until we've got a replacement. So this was in the January. In the June, I was still working, <laughs> still working in London, with no sign of a replacement. So, I put the CV online and I got a, got a call pretty much within the first week asking if I'd be interested in, in contracting a contracting position with that so I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, talk, I'll have a chat about it. So I went to see um, the project manager about it. We had a bit of a chat and it just sounded like a really, really good opportunity. It was trying to get back to Doncaster, but it was more money than what I was on. Just great, a great opportunity. So that went down like a lead balloon really with the company I was with. Didn't take it well at all and we kind of fell out then and it got a bit difficult for a few weeks. And in the end, I just said, look, this isn't working. I went into work one night and my computer had been locked and that sort of thing. So I just said, you know what, it's not working. So I left and went to Network Rail and uh, I think the five years up until very recently, with, with Network Rail mm-hmm. and just come along leaps and bounds in that time and we've done
0: and very active on social media all through that five years as well on LinkedIn posting a lot of the great work that you were doing being out there on track stomping mm-hmm. the ballast having a look at what was going on and proactively going out there inspecting works so it was really refreshing Absolutely. to see that it was one of the reasons I asked you to be on the podcast was your big social mm-hmm. media presence
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was. I first became aware of LinkedIn when I was on. I was on my first NEBOSH certificate, and someone on there. Mm-hmm. He was. He's quite high up in the military, and he was sort of transitioning to coming out. So we yeah. got all these. Is it UCAS points or something like that? So he was doing yeah. moving into the safety field, and he said to me, "He says, uh, are you on LinkedIn?'" And I'm like, is that, is that some sort of dating site or something? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like no, it's like Facebook, but it's uh, it's a professional platform. And I went, no, not a clue what that is. So I didn't give it any more thought. And then I think a, f- a few months after, I thought, I'll oh, give it a look. And I signed up for it. And at that time, I was very much a different type of professional in that. I thought I wasn't one of the people that would post a lot on social media. I wouldn't be drawing attention to myself in that sort of way. It was very much a, I'll let my results speak for themselves and that type of thing. So I started off on LinkedIn like a lot of people do, you know, just looking at other people, seeing what they're doing, looking at other stuff. And at the time, I mean, I'd, I'd look at things and I'd be like, what am I posting that for? And, you know, you're just showing off sort of thing. I think that, that was a bit of sort of immaturity on my part at the time. And then I sort of started maturing as a person and as a professional and just started using LinkedIn a little bit more. And I think it's become very popular in the last sort of 12 to 18 months of what people post and there's, you know, there's LinkedIn coaches and talk about can teach you and train training to get more, more leads and likes and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it was, that was, it's, it's never really been my bag i just literally post about things i'm either thinking about working on or doing or reading at the time and it does just really seem to resonate with a lot of people um and and yeah it's just become more and more more frequent and i mean i, I love the platform i think it's great it's great for interacting with people it's horrifically bad with the troll and stuff that goes on well, I suppose yeah. that's just the downs- downside of any social media. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. how positive your post is, there's always someone that's yeah. going to post There's always
0: it's someone me. negative, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, and it's,
1: it's, it's just, it's it's getting past that. And early, like a few years ago, I'd argue with people, but you just can't win. You can't win with someone that's on a yeah. so it But it used oh, to get to me, and I remember about, i say it was last year sometime, and I thought, do you know what? I've just had enough. I can't be bothered with this anymore. So i put a post and saying, look, I am done for this with social media platforms. I'm going to cancel my Facebook. I'm going to cancel my LinkedIn. If anyone wants to keep in touch, message me your uh, email address, and we'll exchange emails, and we'll, we'll keep in touch. So I deleted my Facebook. <coughs> I've never looked back from that. I've never even regretted that once. And let's Mm -hmm. say I, if I said I posted that post on LinkedIn about Tuesday, (coughs) excuse me, didn't go on again till let's say the weekend. When I logged back in, I had like over a thousand messages from people, and it was like lots were just email addresses. To be fair, but then there were lots Mm -hmm. and lots of people that were saying, "Look, we've never spoken. I don't know you. We're connected somehow on here, but..." I look at what you're doing. I find it inspirational. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really want you to reconsider. Um, I think if you if you go, it'll be a couple of hundred of these. And there were people that sort of, I looked at on the platform as sort of peers and sort mm-hmm. on the same sort of level, who were saying the same thing. Look, we're looking at what you do. and We'd really want to do that. How you do things, and we take a lot of inspiration and ideas from what you do. And I just thought to myself, I was, I was reading it, and then there was a lot of younger people as well that were coming through into the safety profession that were saying, Look, we really need people like yourselves that sort of that next generation to stay and teach us what to do. Mm-hmm. I found that really, really humbling, and I mean, really humbling because in my head. I'm just a simple lad from Doncaster who works hard to get what I've, where I've got to. But mm-hmm. to see that I'm actually influencing people in that way, it made yeah. me stop and think, look, Neil, just, just get over yourself. It's some people sat in, sitting on a keyboard, writing a few things, you know, don't let it bother you. So mm-hmm. I've kind of moved on from that now. And I don't really, God, you know, you get dragged in sometimes, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> but I, try, I, yeah. I just try not to, and if if it's something particularly nasty or particular harsh, I'll just delete that comment or delete that person or block them. That's just that's just how I try to take it forward with with LinkedIn. But I think it's a it's a great platform. It really great is.
0: platform, absolutely yeah. fantastic. People often ask me. How did you get that person to be a guest on your podcast? And I said I messaged them on LinkedIn. How else did yeah. you get them? Yeah, just <laughs> there's, ask him. No, there's no some secret phone book of people that will star on your podcast that you you look up page 32 and say oh, I'm going to get him this week. You just yeah. message them on LinkedIn and say sure, yeah, I'll do it. No problem. Absolutely. That's how and, we get this one up. No. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's
1: it's just it's such a such an amazing platform, and I think say in the last. I think it was 2018. There's been a couple of sort of real definitive moments in my career that's, that's really changed me as a professional since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's all been because of LinkedIn. There was one, I, I went to the health and safety laboratory in Buxton to do a yep. training course. Yep. And it was it mm-hmm. was when NEBOS had just released the health and safety leadership excellence course. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that, that course, can, it, it can get a lot of scorn online because people say it's a one-day course. How can it teach you to be a leadership and an excellent leader? And it's not. I always explain it's not about that. It's not what it's about. But I went there and I did that course. And it's one day, but I don't know whether it was the amazing facilities, the amazing trainers that had there, it was the two Janes, the senior psychologists um, that were doing the course. It just resonated with me so much. About the content in which they were teaching you, about the listening to people. It sounds simple, but too often in this day and age, we don't listen to understand, we listen to respond. We're just listening to someone and wait for them to finish so we can say our piece rather than listening and understanding what is being said. And that's something that I really did take away from that. And then mm-hmm. there was. A couple of other things. So I started. That's I've always read a lot. Always read uh, ever since I was little. Ever mm-hmm. since I can remember. I don't know where it's come from because as a child I was never pushed into reading by parents or anything like that. But I always have. From there, I started just reading more into that sort of subject matter. So I don't know where mm-hmm. I saw book or how how got referred it or anything like that, but it was The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership by Rosa Yeah Antonio Carrillo. And I read it mm-hmm. and it was one of those books that it's gonna forever remain on my bookshelf and I'll probably read it once every year just because it's one of those books you can take something away every time you read it. And It was just I was reading that book and listening, reading Rosa's advice and guidance and it really resonated because this sort of listening and psychological safety type of um, thing that we're doing now more and more, I've been doing in some way for a, a few years without actually realising what I was doing. So that really resonated with me. And another one that's really, really made an impact with me this year is um, from client Compliance to Care, by Clive Lloyd. And I've seen these advertised on LinkedIn and stuff like that. And the reason I refer to LinkedIn with this is when I've done a post about the relationship factor, Rosa mm-hmm. commented and messaged them. Same with Clive. And, I've, you know, I've messaged them, we've spoke quite a bit and commented on each other's posts and things now. And being able to have the interaction with authors of that sort of material on a social mm-hmm. media platform is fantastic. It really is it's those, those pieces of work by those two are quite seminal, I think. And I think those should be sort of considered in the same context as Eric Holmengel and Sidney Decker. I don't give them that much credibility because it's just I haven't read them. And they're not massive books. they only like over 100 pages each. But the, just if we all adopt some of that sort of information and guidance that they're giving, I think we could make such a massive, more, massive difference. And uh, certainly for me, Using the platform of LinkedIn, I do get quite a bit of uh, coverage with talking to people and giving advice and getting advice myself.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of the stuff that I've seen you post as well, Neil, you're very focused on making it good for the end user, making it good for the guy with a shovel, making it good with the guy carrying out the work at Absolutely. the front end that's out there doing the job. And that's the best passion Absolutely. that you have in safety is to be able to look after your people that are out there doing the work?
1: Absolutely, because they're the ones at risk. The, the people mm-hmm. in the office, you know, I, I spend far too much time in the office, I do. Uh, but I think it's a necessary there is that element of it you have to do stuff in the office. Mm-hmm. But the worst you're going to get in the office is you're going to trip over a cable or you're going to cut yourself on a bit of paper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Out on site and railway, it's a dangerous environment. Working with electricity, working on tracks where trains could be running at 125 miles an hour, you're working with equipment it's quite dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, I've personally I've had quite a nasty accident myself on railway, and that was a big big turning point for me in my mindset of you know actually we need to start looking at things. It was. Share a
0: little bit of the circumstances
1: around that as well, now. Yeah, absolutely. It was. But we're going back to about 2008-ish, I think. I remember it was a February. I remember that because it was bitterly cold. and We were up mm-hmm. in Port of Time. It was, right. we were doing a job that's called, we are moving a buffer stop. So we weren't on the main lines mm-hmm. or anything like that. We were in, port, in the port area. And all we had to do was extend this buffer stop by seven meters. So It was literally cut into the rail, drag it out with the machine, Put some sleepers in, seven meter closure rail, job done. Friday morning, three, four hours work at the most. Mm-hmm. So it was freezing. It was absolutely freezing cold. I remember that. And that it was good for me. This is good. So I was carrying a duff jack. And for anyone that doesn't know what a duff jack is, it's a big heavy jack that you you put on the rails and you use to lift up the rail. They and you weigh a lot. I had it on my shoulder and carrying it like that. I'm going up a banking. It was against all the principles of health and safety, safe access and egress. But I'm not up this banking and it's all ash. It's not ballast, it's not secure, it's just that soil and just all material that I've done there over the years. Quite a steep banking. And I lost my footing about halfway up it. I lost my footing. The first thing you do when you fall is put my hands out to scrape my fall. Did that, the duff track came down the back of my hand. Um, instantly, I felt like an electric shock pain got my arm. And I looked down and I'll never forget it because I'm utterly convinced I would have lost the finger had it not been for my gloves. Mm-hmm. So my middle finger, on my right hand was pointing, sort of, it was a sort of like that in the glove. Mm-hmm. And so I'm holding it, on, you know, I'm throwing up. and, and People coming up to me that I'm working with, they're saying, what's up? What's up? So I've told them. And I made, I'm, I wouldn't say I made the mistake, but I said to my foreman at the time, look, look at my finger, lifting the glove up, and he was pointing in a very abnormal direction. And I said to him, look, you're going to have to take me to hospital. Well, that were it. He burst out laughing, and he said, he said to me, he's, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. He said... He said not today, young man. It's Friday and we're on job, and not. We'll get this done. <laughs> we'll get this done. We'll get back to Donnie and we'll drop you at hospital. So, <laughs> I mean, my fingers pointing over at wrong direction. And, you know, the blood filling up end my glove, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do here? So I had to take myself off to the van. I had to kind of just move my finger back over because it, it was excruciating pain. I had to move it back yeah. over. And it's the single worst decision I've ever done because I still suffered now, as you can see on the thing. But that's what my middle finger looks like now. It crosses over. If you look at mm-hmm. it on that hand, the other hand. It crosses over. And when I actually took my glove off in the end, see, hey, but oh, I the mm-hmm. sort of butts of my finger were hanging out because it had burst the thing, end of the finger off. So, it, it I worked till we'd finished. We went home and got got to the hospital, but sort of repairable damage to it. And now it sort of crosses over. I have like I think thirty percent grip strength in that hand now. I can't make a proper fist with it. Mm-hmm. It was that sort of thing that that didn't go, get reported. Didn't, you know, there was no lessons yeah. learned to that. Yeah, but at, at that time I didn't know any better. You know, you're relying on your elbow.
0: At, at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, very absolutely. much so. That, that just hurry up and get home with a job so we can get up the road. We'll, absolutely, we're we'll finished here. Job and knock, and the chute's on, and yeah. it's like wacky races to get away. You
1: know. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't until we were on the way home and we'd whack the heaters on and we started to thaw out a bit, that's when the real pain came because pain in, yeah, the uh, hand, the body was pretty much frozen. My hands were really, really cold, and. But when it warmed up, the pain sitting here in was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Um, and I don't think I've experienced pain before or since like it. Um, and it was yeah. that it just sort of that just sort of twisted my mind a little bit into the this shouldn't be happening. And it yeah. was it's quite
0: interesting know, now- the old this one as well, isn't it? Because you're out there <laughs> working with your heart quite a lot of the time. My first yeah. shift on track. I saw a guy hold a cable. It was the, the weekend that Cut 5 Gloves when introduced to the railway. Yeah, yeah. And I was Saturday night shift. And one of the supervisors had a cable like this. And he said to another guy, cut the cable. And he had a big set of cable loppers. And they, <laughs> you can see where this is going. Black cable, black gloves, cable loppers in the dark. And closed the cable loppers in his thumb. And uh, nearly took the, the toppy thumb off and I had to take him to hospital. Um afterwards we had to go to the Royal in Glasgow, just as all the nightclubs kicked out, oh. dressed head to toe in orange clothes. <laughs> so it made for a bit of an entertaining night. So that yeah, was my I'll very first introduction is. to the railway.
1: <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that, that was happening back then, and it was just it just sort of you know now we've got a bit more of a, an education and understand these things it's looking at you know I, I know that was the culture back then but why on earth did you pitch someone not stop and or even at the planning stage think right how are they going to get up there how are they going to do that and this sort of yeah. thing and it was just it was it wasn't heard of was it and i mean i, th- I don't think i ever reported or saw an accident be reported um Whilst I was working on the railway for the first five or six years, it's just that was the culture, wasn't it? Ian? Yeah.
0: Ex
1: miners, you know what I mean? They, they were a lot of different breed.
0: There was a fear of being a zero-hours contractor as well. When you yeah, work absolutely. in the railway, it's a very different environment. The civil gangs that work in a, a van almost become like a little family. They pick yeah. each other up in the way they work, they all turn up, they get their stuff loaded up, they go out to track. They'll go to the local takeaway, get their takeaway yeah. and sit, and wait before the, the yeah, shift's yeah. on and then start. And then they finish up together and all travel home together. And yeah, it's probably yeah. the only thing that they'll see for the shift because their family are all in bed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think when you're working in a gang, you spend more time with you, the rest of your gang than you do with your own family, don't you? And especially if you work yeah. away from home as well, that it becomes your family very quickly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's that not wanting to admit that someone's made a mistake potentially and that's why you've ended up in the situation you're in. Um, and the, you know, there's still elements of that. It is still yeah, out it's there.
0: Definitely.
1: It's out there. But I think I think my sort of ethos on how I conduct myself and sort of take my profession, it's, it's, it is all about the end user because without the end yeah. user, the loops on the ballast, there's nothing that gets done. Absolutely yeah. nothing.
0: Projects live and die on having the right people in the right place at the right time, don't they?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the, I mean, at the moment, there's such a lack of really sort of skilled workforce because a lot of the workforce have left.
0: You know, like when yeah.
1: the, the industry goes through the slump and you know, you have your control periods in the railway, and when
0: yeah.
1: it sort of gets to the end of the control period or the beginning of a new yeah. one,
0: yeah, contracts don't
1: get awarded, and yeah, yeah, a lot of people no think,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, a lot of people think, do you know what, it's not worth it, I can go and you know, rather than working a 12 hour shift or two 12 hour shifts on a weekend, they can just go and get a job somewhere else, Monday to Friday, a bit less money, but at least they're home and at least it's secure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a big
0: challenge. Yeah, you're starting the cycle all over again there as well, aren't you? You've brought these people on for the last five years, giving them all the coaching the mentoring, mm-hmm. trying to train them up and get them working safely and get them working on the ethos that you want them to work in, and then you lose them all. And then you're starting Absolutely. to scratch when you're bringing all the fresh blood back in. You'll keep your team but a lot of the guys in the periphery that you're really starting to bring on and develop they all disappear you know really absolutely hard.
1: yeah it is mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's certainly a challenge and it does certainly keep us busy
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. definitely
0: so if we talk about what's been your biggest challenge across your career then neil um
1: i, t- I said there's been a couple um Across the career, I think to begin with, when I first started doing safety, I was I was in my late twenties, so you go into meetings and things, and I tend to be the youngest in the room, mm-hmm. and so you know you get called a lot of things like youngun or the kids here or what that sort of thing, and it was sort of when I first started in safety, it was sort of the sort of older generation who sort of grown. Lived and breathed the railway, and just moved into something that they thought were a bit of a cushier number to yeah. see the days out type of thing. Not in all cases, mm-hmm. but in a lot.
0: Yeah,
1: it was kind of building that relationship to where you sort of they respected you having a seat at the table with them, that sort of thing. That was always mm-hmm. a challenge. And getting to look past the age, and I suppose it's the, it's the same sort of scenario that's happening across the rail industry at the moment with equality. Isn't it? It's getting a more diverse workforce and you know having the right people in the right post and not just having it as jobs for the boys and they've got there through time served. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's one thing the industry is doing a lot better at. I mean, I mean it could be better as anything could,
0: yeah.
1: um, but it is. It's. it's I think now, as we move into sort of the late deeper into CP6, I think we're seeing more emphasis on having the right person in the right post.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're starting to see a lot more professional people being recruited than that have Mm -hmm. come from the university background, as well as having the core people that are there, that have been there a long time. It's important to have that balance and that mix. And I think that makes for really strong teams. Some of the best teams that I've worked with in the kind of signaling sphere have been the long-term signaling people but getting shaken up a little bit with some yeah. fresh blood coming,
1: yeah, with fresh ideas on how to do things rather than just being the old adage of "this is how we've to always done
0: it." To learn and develop as well. I
1: think I've lost it. Ah, yeah. I think you're back. Yep, yeah,
0: that's I've, me back.
1: Sorry, mate. The yeah, connection
0: right. went a bit unstable. They'll
1: red that out. Yeah, uh, I think I think another challenge that I've faced is sort of so, sat with myself in that. A lot of times, I'll have sort of really, really strong periods where I'll do lots of development and things like that, and then I'll have a bit of a sort of imposter moment that creep in, and I'll be like, "Am I really as good as what I think I am? Should I, you know?" And then you start being a bit self-critical and self-doubt and don't get me wrong, when I'm at work, I walk into every room as myself. I don't try to be anything. I'm not, I don't have airs and graces. I'd like to think I don't carry an ego. I just try to be myself. But then, you know, you start thinking, yeah, I cut out for this. And I'm sort of in a, I don't know, I'm in a bit of a quandary of, where where to go next with my career because i'm still enjoying really enjoying Mm -hmm. the frontline stuff but then like two years ago i'd have been absolutely Mm -hmm. adamant and focused that i want to be on a in a head of safety role or health and safety director role i know Mm -hmm. i could do that role standing on that sort of role standing on my head but is that what i want to do at the minute am i going to be happy because once you sort of reach that level that's quite a rarefied air and it's not really that much time to get the boots on and make a difference with the end user. Mm -hmm. It's more strategy and, you know, the long, longer term goals. So I think that's certainly a challenge for me at the moment, thinking about where I want to be. Um, And I've kind of just put that on the shelf. I'm happy in what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. Until I'm not happy, I'll just, I'm just going to continue on. keep making a difference to the front line uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but whereas two years ago I'd been adamant, I, within three years, I'm going to be in a health and safety director's role. Um, and, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd, I'd interviewed for those sorts of roles and I've been successful a couple of times for senior positions and on one head of safety role. And for whatever reason, we couldn't agree terms. And it was just, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in what's meant to be will be. When the time's right, something will present yeah. itself, and that's that's how I'm sort of approaching um, my, my future sort of career progression in terms of job. Um, in terms of personal mm-hmm. development, I've, my personal development plan changes quite frequently. Um, and I think I'm gonna, over the next couple of years, take a bigger focus into the environmental fear, sphere. Um, I've got chartered in health and safety. I think I'm going to try and work towards that in environment as well. Uh, I've just started Mm -hmm. the NEBUS diploma for environment. Um, I'm finding that really, really refreshing. Tough course
0: as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know as well as I do, we read the same health and safety stuff hundreds if not thousands of times over the years and it's just it's refreshing to be reading new subject matter and learning new subject matter um, I'm really, really enjoying that at the moment so I'm going to take that and pursue that I think over got my exam in January um, so mm. cracking the books for the next couple of months on that um, but in terms of career progression I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing turning up until... Not happy with it anymore, or I just fancy a change.
0: Yeah. So, what role are you in now, then,
1: Neil? So, a health, safety, and environment practitioner again. Yep. Um, yeah. So, it's a similar sort of role. So, this year, COVID hit, and mm-hmm. I've been a contractor to Network Rail for five years. And COVID mm-hmm. hit, and everyone sort of, I don't want to say knee-jerk world was in a bad place and no one really knew what was happening and it was changing day to day so all the contractors got laid off yeah Um, Yeah. and then I got brought back and then I got laid off again
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and then I got brought back and then I was talking to my sort of project manager at the time Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't say we had a falling out, we had a bit of a difference of opinion in that um came back to the business and the project manager at the time said he didn't think I did my job career. Mm-hmm. I was a bit miffed by that. I was like, can you explain what that is? Because that's quite a broad statement. And he said that he didn't feel as though I was best suited to be going out on site as much. Mm-hmm. He felt I should be in the office working on health and safety projects. Um, and I was sort of trying to explain to him, and he wasn't safety background, he was a project manager, trying to explain to him um, what I do and the science behind what I do. So the psychological safety aspect of it, the relationship building, you know, the differences between safety one and safety two, and mm-hmm. me trying to employ the safety two kind of model. And you just didn't get it. You just didn't get it at all. Um, so I continued on for about a week and a bit, and then I, another opportunity presented itself, and I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. I'm going to make the move. So I moved into a role and mm-hmm. I think it was, it was, I was glad to take the role. Mm-hmm. And I was glad of the break, as it were. But I was quickly mm-hmm. aware that the role wasn't suitable for me. Um, mm-hmm. and it was just, it, the organisation wasn't right for me. and I just didn't fit with what they were looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And then they offered me a scene, I went as a health and safety manager, um, they offered me senior health and safety manager job, um, but when they offered it me, it was head of safety. But when the contract came, it was senior health and safety manager. And when I asked what the difference was and why I involved one thing and it was another, they basically just got oh well, I don't know why I said it, but that it. is actually this. So that was a bit like, I don't know why they telling me one thing when it's actually another it was just, it just wasn't the right fit for me. I um, mm-hmm. so spoke to some contacts who I'd worked with before and got a very similar role, um, working with Ganymede Solutions um, and bits and pieces with the network rail. Um, that's what I'm currently doing. But I think when the current role is a bit of more of an emphasis on environment and vegetation you know, management yeah. and things like that. Um, so okay. good, to, good to be getting out again. Um, yeah. Excellent,
0: excellent. So, what's next, Neil? Where do you see yourself progressing to in the future? I know we covered off that you thought mm. maybe head of safety, of a safety director of safety, but you're also loving engaging at the front line. So, what's coming in the future?
1: Well, I think for development purposes, I'm going to look at doing. I'm doing my NEBS uh, diploma. Mm-hmm. All being well, that I passed that, um, I'm going to look at doing my masters next year okay and, and that's I think that's going to keep me busy. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of sort of career progression uh, mm-hmm. I don't know I'm just as long as I'm happy doing what I'm doing, I'm gonna keep doing it and um, if I become unhappy then I'll sort of test the market and see what's out there. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think it's it's challenging in that I've been doing what I do for a long time now. And I've sort of done it at quite a sort of site-focused level. I don't want to say low level yep. because I don't want to be disparaging yep. to people, but it's been at a sort of certain level and it's not sort of taking those steps up. And I've acted as a mentor for people over the years who are now several lanes. Mm-hmm. What I am. I'm good with that. I don't have any sort of resentment towards people doing that. I think it's good. But I'm still happy at sort of being the interaction. With the front line, mm-hmm. sort of that middle level. But a, d- a few people have said to me, look, you need to be applying for these sort of senior roles. And then when you're in a senior role, you can make that change. It's not office based all the time. You can get out and you're at a senior level where you can influence, I don't want to say force, but you can influence other people to be getting out on site and doing the same sort of thing. That's, yeah. I think that's where uh, I see myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just just gonna keep on keeping on for the time being. Look at Mm -hmm. getting my education to a point where I think I'm all right for a little bit. I don't think I'll ever be fully happy or satisfied or content because I've got such a curious mind. I want to know and understand and learn constantly. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of progression, I think when the right opportunity for me is there, it will present itself and it will feel right. To now, it just these other roles haven't felt right. Mhm.
0: Mhm. Okay. Perfect. So, what advice and guidance would you give to someone starting out in health and safety as a career today?
1: Oh, I get I get this question a lot. I get at least a dozen of the, this question every week by people who are wanting to get into the industry or, or starting the profession. I think it's firstly you need to you need to ask why. Ask yourself why you want to do it, because this isn't a job that you can just play at. It's not a job no. that you can just do. I don't mean it disparaging to you know, people that work in supermarkets, but if you are you can't this isn't a job where it's just you go and put things on a shelf and forget about it and that's it. Health safety, once it gets into your blood, it's in your blood and it's not a nine to five. It's mm. it's a twenty-four seven. And I think that's that's one been one of my Real big challenges over the years is switching off. I've always struggled with that. And, you know, you don't want to not answer your phone at ten o'clock at night because you're thinking in your head that if someone's ringing you, they need you, <laughs> and it's that sort of that sort of thing. But you get almost
0: what, addicted to it, don't you? On the on the phone's going, everybody's sleeping in Europe, taking calls, right? Okay, yeah, what's happened? <laughs> I,
1: writing emails constantly, I think. I think certainly with my family here, um, if I'm writing emails when I get home, I very quickly get told by my missus, look, this is my time now. This is the family's time. Um, mm-hmm. And with a four-year-old daughter, you don't, you haven't got time to be writing emails and just all over wanting to play nurses and doctors. So it's about yeah. having that discipline to, to be able to switch off. But in terms mm-hmm. of um, guidance for people looking to get into the industry, or people that are just starting mm-hmm. out. I think it's find yourself someone that's an existing professional, whether it's at your company, on LinkedIn, the IOSH Mentor Scheme, whatever it is, and just talk to them. It don't have to be you know anything big, fancy, extravagant. Ask to go for a coffee with them and just pick the brains about things. Talk to them, gain the knowledge. Um, and I know there's this, this sort of cycle of an issue of I can't get a job because I haven't got experience. I can't get experience because I haven't got a job with safety. And it's a difficult not to crack that one. But what I'd advise anyone is get on Google. Google health and safety consultancies in my area, within whatever's commutable for yourself, whether it's five miles, mm-hmm. 10 miles, 15 miles, and drop them a message. Say, look, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wanting to get into health and safety. Is there any way I can... And I know it's not for everyone, but if you can spare an hour, two hours a week, or you can volunteer with these companies, what health and safety consultancy isn't going to want, even if it's simple stuff like filing stuff or just looking at things for them, having that experience in your CV will stand you mm-hmm. out, stand you in good yeah. stead, because at least it's showing you have some experience. And also ed- educate, get yourself educated. And I'm not saying, you know, do the big fancy expensive qualifications and get all the titles. Start off small, start off with a one day course, a triple SDS, a site supervisor safety training scheme or site manager's training safety training scheme or one of the highest qualifications like the supervising safely, managing safely. And they'll give you a taste of, of if you're going to yeah. say supervising safety course or managing safety course, you'll get a taste of very quickly whether that it, whether safety is for you or not. Yeah. If so you dive straight into a knee bush without having any sort of grounding whatsoever, it can be very overwhelming. And of course, knee bushes are great to have—not just knee bushes, but any sort of safety qualification of that level. Um, and it's just just never think you've made it. Always keep learning. And just and I say I say this to people and it, it sounds like i it's detrimental, but it's not. Use people, use people with experience, don't have to be safety. Whatever industry you're in, go and speak to someone that's done it for 10, 15 years, because they'll tell you exactly how things are done. You know, you could mm-hmm. you could read something in a book, look at the railway, look at how many standards there are for how we should do things. Yeah. If we did everything to the standard very little would get done you read a standard and then go and talk to someone that actually does it and they'll tell you the workers planned work is actually done and there's often a disparity between it and it's not that it's been done unsafely it's just it's more practical and it's it's just getting that understanding for how health and safety works in your industry because. Every industry is different, and the railway is a very unique beast in its, its own right. But in health and safety in general, um, we did a bit of a, a thing a little while ago with Nibosh, and it was what do they call it? It was, it was a guide that Nibosh published, and it was the interview about 25 of us. Um, mm-hmm. and it was all about what advice we'd give to people starting out. And those, um, those a whole broad range of people that spoke, and it, you know, all the way through. And I, I mean, I looked at it, and I thought, what on earth am I doing in this sort of category? <laughs> but it, it was it was really good, and I can't, the name of it's escaped me. Um, it'll come back to me. Um, and, and that was the same thing. And It was just digest as much information as you can. There's stuff much, in, I mean we're in 2020 now there's so much stuff online HSE, yeah. website, guidance just all sorts of things, IOSH, whatever sort of professional body you want to sort of go down accreditation wise. Um just read and digest and I know it's not, reading's not for everyone but you know, get the experience volunteer if you can I know it's not for everyone you know, not everyone's in the position where they can do that but if I was recruiting for a health and safety, a junior health and safety advisor, and they both had identical mm. CVs, but the only difference was one that had volunteered for three hours a week as a consultancy, mm-hmm. that's going to be the favourite candidate, isn't it? On paper, yeah. it's, it's just there's ways to do it. Um, it's it is a difficult nut to crack, or it is a such a rewarding industry that you, that you can't play at. You've got to be fully committed yeah. into it. It's not something that you can just do for a little bit because you get found out pretty quickly if it's not. Um, and yeah. You need to be understanding of your own capabilities mm-hmm. um, and it's it's not out, stepping out of your boundary of what you're capable of. And as you, as you well know, the IOSH code of conduct, integrity and all that sort of stuff, you've got to, and competence, you've got to uphold that. And when you sort of get mm-hmm. to the level of being chartered, you've got to stick to that kind of conduct. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the reason why that's fresh in my head is today I've had a day off work and obviously I'm doing this podcast for you tonight, but today I've been um peer review panel. In mm-hmm. my first one as an observer. Um obviously can't confidentiality can't go into too much um detail about it, but that's been really, really good. I've I've took a quite a lot from that today. and Got a real good feeling of, you know, giving a bit back. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But yeah, giving, (sighs) it is a difficult industry to get into, health and safety, but so rewarding. And I think the main sort of thing that I would say to anyone trying to crack it is don't give up. If you're genuinely Mm -hmm. passionate about it, there's going to be knockbacks, there's going to be setbacks. Just keep going because the industry is lacking there are people that sort of play at it there are some very very good people out there there's some not so great people out there or across the board the health and safety profession isn't where it needs to be and there aren't that many genuinely passionate people out there that really really want to make a difference and if you have that passion just keep going just keep going that's that's what i say to everyone. just keep going Eventually, if you keep knocking on the door, someone will open it.
0: Brilliant, thanks, Neil. Appreciate that, and thank you very no much problem. on behalf of the viewers and listeners. They're safer than your average for coming on the podcast and giving up your no time. Problem. We really appreciate it. I found this conversation fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide.